0: Welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today we are going to be talking about the famous music festival Woodstock. I've always been really fascinated by Woodstock because, honestly, I don't really think a lot of festivals can live up to the hype that Woodstock has kind of put into the mainstream. And the anniversary of Woodstock is coming up in a couple of days, and I thought this was the best time for me to talk about Woodstock. It is a lot of information, so without further ado, I'm just going to jump right into the story of how Woodstock was created. And it was created by these guys, Michael Lang, Artie Kornfeld, Joel Roseman, and John P. Roberts. John Roberts and Joel Rosenman, they financed Woodstock. And Michael Lang had some experience as a music promoter in his past, having co-organized the Miami Pop Festival An estimated 25,000 people attended the Miami Pop Festival that year in 1968. So Michael Lang has some experience with this. It's not like they jumped right into the deep end without really knowing how to do this. However, Woodstock, I think, was the first festival that was so different beyond anything else. And it kind of made waves that I think they were kind of in an aspect diving in deep to this um so the planning for woodstock happened in early 1969 where john roberts and joel rosenman were hanging around they were new york entrepreneurs and in the process of building a recording studio in manhattan michael lang and Artie kornfeld they were lawyers and their friend miles laurie who had done legal work on the project suggested that they contact john roberts and joel rosenman about financing A similar but much smaller recording studio that Michael and Artie hoped to build in Woodstock, New York. So this was the thing about it is Woodstock initially was not intended to be a music festival. It was only intended to be a recording studio for them and other artists to record out of. Artists like Bob Dylan, he lived in the Woodstock area and it was just I think convenient. This is what they were proposing. However, Joel and John were not impressed with the idea of having a recording studio be built out there in the woods. So they instead suggested an idea for a concert there. How about instead of doing a studio, we have a concert out there. And this concert features the kind of artists known to hang out around Woodstock, again, such as Bob Dylan. Artie and Michael agreed to this new switch up in plan, and they got started on Woodstock in January, 1969. So a big point of contention for Woodstock was the selection of the venue. They knew that they wanted Woodstock to be the centerfold of this new festival, but they weren't sure where it was going to be, like what patch of land it was going to be, how they were going to get the green light for landowners or property owners to allow this to happen. Like they just had no idea of how to do this. The local residents, if you can imagine at the time in the late 60s, absolutely rejected this idea 100%. You know, this was the time where the hippie movement was really coming into fruition here on the back of the Vietnam War and so a lot of people were not on board with the music that was coming out at the time which was very folk-centric and a bit um, hippie and a bit psychedelic and they were not okay with this. So they saw that this Woodstock Festival as being like one of the worst things that could happen to them. Michael and Artie thought that they had found another possible location at the Winston Farm in Saugerties, New York. So growing alarmed at the lack of progress where they were trying to secure a piece of land for Woodstock, Joel and John took over the search for a venue and they discovered a 300-acre Mills Industrial Park in the town of Walkill, New York, which the group leased for $10,000 in the spring of 1969. So they found this piece of land and they went to the town officials and they told them that, listen, no more than 50,000 people would attend this concert. We can't imagine it being any bigger than this. The local residents were still opposing the project. And so now we're approaching July of 1969 and it's been seven months, right? Um, So in early July, the town board members passed a law requiring a permit for any gathering over 5,000 people. And this was strategically done so that, again, they couldn't just easily come through and do this festival. This new permit law made it almost impossible for the promoters to continue construction at the wallkill site because they were set on this site. But now they couldn't do it because this permit made it impossible. And they didn't really have the money for this either, by the way. Even though they had the backers of the financers, it made it almost impossible to do anything because the townspeople were not okay with this. Well, in comes a man named Elliot Tibber, and he owned a motel in the Bethel region of New York. He had read in the papers that the planned venue for Woodstock and Wallkill was stopped because of this permit law. And he thought to himself, well, I own this piece of land and this motel that I run isn't uh, doing anything. So I figure, hey, why don't I give these people a call and see if they can use my property? So Elliot rang up Michael and offered to host Woodstock on his 15 acre motel grounds and said that he had a permit for such an event. Well, this would be a dead end, unfortunately when Michael went to look at this property, he saw that it was basically a massive swampland. It was not going to do, it could not even hold any kind of structural integrity. It just could not be done. So that was unfortunate. However, Elliot was an interesting key figure in this whole story because Elliot introduced them to a realtor, a real estate agent who drove him to a dairy farm that was owned by a man named Max Yazger. And Max Yazger, how do I say this? He had a landscape that was extremely unique because the land formed a natural bowl sloping down to this road on the land's north side. And it was honestly the perfect spot. It almost perfectly made sense that they could see the structure of the venue, the stage being right there, the people all around and the center there. Like it made sense. So now that they had finally chosen the venue after starting at Wallkill, they now are using Max Yasker's land. And so that was so good that they did this. They once again told the town officials, listen, we're changing venue. It's going to be at this dairy farm. And again, we expect no more than 50,000 people. No worries here. It's all good. It's going to be taken care of. Despite the resident opposition and signs that they would make protesting this whole thing and signs that they would hold up saying buy no milk stop max's hippie music festival so many other stupid things like that where they would try to protest this thing the bethel town attorney building inspector and town supervisor approved the festival permits everyone else can suck it because they won the approval of the townspeople that they needed to get approval from and they were so on board with this nonetheless Even with those officials approving the permit, you know, the rest of the Bethel Town Board refused to issue the permits formally. So they were withheld from the group unethically until all of the board members finally lamented and gave them the permit that they actually needed. The festival could proceed pending backing by the Department of Health and Agriculture and removal of certain structures um, that were around just so that obviously no one could possibly get hurt. So, unfortunately, this was in July and this was an extremely late change to the game because they had a set date in August. This was encroaching very quickly. This was a massive problem. Um, So, behind the scenes, You have them trying to find this venue, and then you also have them trying to recruit band members and artists and musicians to come aboard. So it's all happening at the same time. You know, August is when this happens. So they have a month to structurally figure this out and build something, which is so not going to happen. A meeting happened three days before Woodstock was to go about. Joel was asked by the construction foreman to choose between two options the first option they would complete the fencing and ticket booths the ticket booths was how they made their money without these ticket booths they would not be able to collect so if you can imagine a festival with no ticket booths people would just show up for free essentially um, and that would leave all the financers you know Joel and John who were the financers for Woodstock and everyone else that contributed to Woodstock's happening they would be facing almost certain bankruptcy after the festival if no ticket booths were to be built. Again, the first option, complete the fencing and the ticket booths or two, trying to complete the stage, which obviously would mean that the artists would be unable to perform without a stage. So which option are you picking? Are you picking having the stage but no way of making money? Or are you going to build a ticket booth to make money but no stage for the people to like go on? they had to think what was best for the time being. So the next morning, it became clear that the first option of building the ticket booths and the fencing, that just wouldn't happen. That they needed the stage to be built, obviously. Of course you need a stage for the people to perform on. So they made the ultimate sacrifice of not completing the fencing around the venue and building the ticket booths in favor of completing the stage. However, The stage would be half finished when Woodstock was to start. Um, So (laughs) unfortunately it just was like a haphazard job. And overnight before the concert, guess how many people showed up? 50,000 people. And these were early birds, strictly early bird people. 50,000 early concert goers had arrived and had planted themselves in front of the half finished stage and plopped themselves there and was like, cool, we're here. Now again, no ticket booths, so a lot of people kind of came in for free. And remember when they said, oh, only 50,000 people max are gonna show up? Well, they would soon eat their words. (laughs) Although the festival would leave Joel and John close to financial ruin, their ownership of the film that was made and the recording rights turned their finances around when the Academy Award-winning documentary entitled Woodstock was released in March of 1970. So even though issue with the ticket booths happened to be an extremely disastrous thing at the time. Luckily, they actually had people there that were recording this documentary, this film, and it did really well in the box office. They were lucky this did well. So that is the whole venue aspect, the location aspect, the building aspect, if you will, in some capacity of Woodstock. So now, well, what about the early stages of trying to form the bands well in early april 1969 credence clearwater revival became the first act to sign a contract for the event and they agreed to play at woodstock for ten thousand dollars which is massive money credence clearwater revival they were very big at this time so they were asking for big money and that's something that you're gonna happen to notice throughout this thing here The promoters had experienced difficulty landing big-name groups prior to Credence's committal to play. These are people that aren't known in the industry and they're coming up with a festival and they're trying to sign massive big names to this venue, this festival, and the bands and their people are like, who are these guys? I don't know, is this even safe to do? What is this? And they're like, no but Credence Clearwater Revival coming on the scene and being like, sure, we'll play at Woodstock. Why not? It actually helped open the floodgates. So Credence Clearwater Revival was given their 3 a.m. start time at Woodstock. For some reason, though, they were omitted from the Woodstock film, mostly because of John Fogarty's insistence that they weren't to be shown on the film. I'm not quite sure why he didn't want to be in the film and why um, he didn't want the band to be in the Woodstock documentary. They're kind of bitter over it. A lot of the members in Creedence Clearwater Revival have expressed bitterness over their experience regarding Woodstock and they don't seem to talk about it or have nice things to say about it. Tickets for the three-day event cost $18 in advance and $24 at the gate, which is equivalent to $130 or $170 today, depending on whether you got the ticket in advance or at the gate. It just depended. The ticket sales were limited to record stores in the greater New York City area or by mail via post office. Around 186,000 advanced tickets were sold. Even though they had originally anticipated, again, approximately only 50,000 people max showing up, which the town officials would hate them after this. Like, you guys only told us 50,000 people would show up, and like, what the heck is going on So mad. Now on to kind of like the sound and lighting kind of whole thing about it, right? Well, if you're doing a concert outside in the elements, how is the lighting and the sound going to go out, right? You know, what's the deal with that? Well. This would kind of be done in a somewhat haphazard way as well uh, for the budget at the time. Sound for the concert was engineered by a man named Bill Hanley. He said, it worked very well. I built special speaker columns on the hills and had 16 loudspeaker arrays and a square platform going up to the hill on 70-foot towers. We set it up for 150,000 to 200,000 people. Of course, half a million people showed up. Can you imagine that? That's insane. So a company called Altec designed marine plywood cabinets that weighed half a ton apiece and stood six feet tall, almost four feet deep, and three feet wide. And these cabinets carried four 15-inch JBL loudspeakers. Mm-hmm. Behind the stage were three transformers providing 2,000 amps of current to power the amplification setup. For 500,000 people, half a million people turning up to this event, you kind of need that. The live performances were captured on a 12-track recorder by a remote truck that was just hanging out like in the background of it all. And then they took this audio and then it was mixed at the record plant studio in New York. Lighting for the concert was engineered by lighting designer and tech director, E.H. Bresford Chip Monk. So, I'm just gonna nickname him Chip. Chip was hired to plan and build the staging and lighting, 10 weeks of work for which he was paid $7,000, which is equivalent to nearly $50,000 today. So, he got a pretty penny for it, not gonna lie. Much of his original plan had to be scrapped when the promoters were not allowed to use the original location at Wallkill, like I mentioned. Once things had been switched over, The stage roof that was constructed in the shorter time span would uh, not be able to support the lighting that he had rented out for this. The lights that he had rented had kind of wound up sitting unused underneath the stage. And the only light on the stage was from spotlights. They only had a short amount of time to do this. Chip used 12, 13,000 watt spotlights rigged on four towers around the stage. The lights weighed 600 pounds each. My God. And were used by spotlight operators who had to climb up on the top of the 60 foot high lighting towers to operate them by hand. I mean, that's insane. So now we're getting into the goods, the festival itself. On the day of Woodstock, everyone drove their cars down to the location, right? And now you have to picture this in your mind. Half a million people turn up to Woodstock, right? Small dairy farm, not meant to hold nearly half a million people. This created a huge bumper to bumper traffic jam that would be miles long. Every single person was stuck What do people do in this situation? They abandoned their cars and they walked. Whether they were close by or they were a few miles away, they stopped their car wherever it was parked and they simply walked. So can you imagine this? The police absolutely must have been hating this. And the townspeople must have been hating this even more. Because now all these cars were creating a massive traffic jam. No one could go anywhere. (laughs) And this was going on for three days, mind you. Eventually, radio and television descriptions of the traffic jam discouraged people from setting off to the festival, as you could probably imagine. The New York governor at the time, his name was Nelson Rockefeller, he called John Roberts and told him that he was thinking of ordering 10,000 National Guard troops to the festival. But John persuaded him not to, like, listen, no, 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 no. We don't need this. Like, we're fine. Don't worry about it. It's all copacetic. They were just trying to not incite a riot and fear in these townspeople and in the town officials. They were like, we got this under control. But did they really have it under control? That's my question. I think they were flying off the seat of their pants, but fair enough. During the festival, personnel from nearby Stewart Air Force Base helped to ensure order and airlifted performers in and out of the concert concert. So that's kind of what ended up happening because of this massive traffic jam the performers as well were stuck too They were like, how the hell do we even get here? So a helicopter had to be brought in to take people Especially the bands and the artists the musicians via helicopter to Woodstock to the stage. So of course this major traffic jam delayed the start time of the festival by hours When the first band showed up and they were very late, hours late, it created a backflow for Woodstock to go on a lot longer and later than what they originally planned. So the opening band for Woodstock was a band called Sweetwater, and they were in the middle of this traffic jam. They were taking their car with their instruments and they were backed up by the traffic jam. So they couldn't get on the stage at at the start time at all. So, Michael Lane convinced Richie Havens to perform in their stead until they could get things moving. Seeing as he was the only musician able to start, Richie Havens, he was the only one there. <laughs> he was the only musician that was there. He was like, Oh, what's going on here? Like, I don't know what's happening. And Sweetwater had to be airlifted <laughs> to Woodstock. So, while he was waiting for Sweetwater to come on, Richie was like, Okay, I guess I'll start. Like, all right richie started the festival with half a million people there you know he thought okay maybe i'll do like a couple of tunes maybe half an hour no he had to keep going for hours he tried to start and stop his his set so many times but they kept forcing him to continue play more play more play more play more just keep going keep going we need to stall (laughs) because no one else was there. None of the other acts were there yet. Sweetwater hadn't showed up yet. So Richie Havens played for seven encores and his final song was a freestyle jam that was called Freedom, it was dubbed Freedom. It became one of the most popular songs at Woodstock. I think it still is to be honest so it was just a jam he was like okay what the hell am i doing here i've done all my set like a million times what's left for me to do aside from just freestyle so that's what he ended up doing and it would become richie's most popular song throughout his entire career by the way woodstock made such an impact on richie that when he died in 2013 by his request his ashes were scattered over the woodstock grounds in bethel i think that's really sweet Like, clearly he was in over his head because he didn't anticipate he had to be the first one on there because that wasn't the plan. You'll see in this whole story, the plans that were in plan do not happen. Thankfully, by the time Richie was finally allowed to leave the stage, thank God, Sweetwater arrived in the helicopter. And so they began playing at about 6.15pm, which was three hours later than their scheduled 3pm start time. So... Can you imagine that as well? Like, the people in the crowd um, that were there, they were aware of kind of the bands that were there and, like, the order that things were happening or what they were told. And then Sweetwater didn't show up for three hours. This Richie Havens guy plays for three hours. People must have been like, what the hell's going on? To add to the problems and difficulty in dealing with the large crowds as if there didn't need to be any more problems, recent rain had caused muddy roads and fields. So... This whole entire kind of venue turned into almost like a massive mudslide and Woodstock was not nearly ready or properly equipped to provide first aid for the number of people that were attending. Again, they only expected 50,000 people to show up and a half a million people turn up at this one venue. I mean, there's no way they've run over their heads. They had no people or barely any people to provide proper first aid to these people that were attending for three days that were out in these rainy, muddy conditions. Not really the best food and overpriced food, mind you. All of these things happening, people that were on drugs and maybe overdosing or tripping really badly, you know, accidents in the crowd in general. I mean, this was a massive, massive health issue. To add to this, the local police that were supposed to be attending Woodstock to ensure order at the festival were only off-duty officers. And days before the concert, The NYPD purposefully told those attending officers that off-duty work was prohibited. So they had to get off-duty police officers to do this, somehow. It's just, it's just like insane the backlash that they got from this, but the absolute chaos and pandemonium that ended up happening. Not to forget this as well, mind you, the massive traffic jam was a huge issue. Local police officers from the neighboring towns were busy handling this 20-mile car pileup. So, any police that were in the area were focusing on the traffic jam, not on the people and the musicians in the crowd. So, if you can imagine, drugs like weed and LSD and other such substances were spread throughout the audience openly without fear of being caught by the police because (laughs) there was none there. So, they could smoke freely and trip freely without the consequences of... The police being like, "Uh-uh, you can't do this. What do you think this is? A music festival? Uh-uh, you ain't smoking here." But nope, people were like, ah, "There's no police here. We are gonna smoke to our heart's content or get high to our heart's content." So, um, they smoked so much weed that a cloud formed, and it lingered over Woodstock for about three days after the festival. I mean, that's hilarious. Can you imagine like Woodstock the next three days after the festival ended, everyone gets secondhand high from this massive weed cloud? That's funny to me. To add to the pretty bad conditions with the overcrowding, the drugs, and now the mudslide that was happening, because again, this is outside. It's not like they had proper tents or um, other kind of structures set up here. It was only the open stage And it was people that were that were camping out in their little sleeping bags and makeshift tents and little like shanty towns, if you will, along the venue, anywhere they could find a place to sleep. They would. Um, So and then you add the rain that's coming in and creating a mudslide effect almost. I mean, it literally it was it was nuts. Like, people were, like, diving into this mud pile, like, naked. Like, people just had no fucks to give about this at all. No issue for sanitation. Like, they didn't care at all. I mean, they were free because here's the thing about it, right? You know, I mentioned that Woodstock um, happened in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, The hippie movement that came about from the backlash to the Vietnam War was a massive thing that was happening and transpiring People did not want this happening. They did not want this festival happening. But if you can imagine, these kids, they were, you know, young kids like in their teens or maybe in their 20s or something going to this Woodstock Festival, that they were finally carefree and they were living with no rules or restrictions from their parents or society. They were out here for three days, even though they weren't really getting the best food or proper care or they were drinking and drugging to their heart's content or whatever. The funny thing about it is there weren't any riots that broke out. Everyone was actually very nice to each other. The only issues that were ever caused from this were basically from, like, drug issues, again, like possible um, overdoses, and then any physical injuries from, like, the mud or the elements, things like that. Like, the crowd was very nice, genuinely from what I've researched and from what I've seen. Everyone seemed to be very nice and happy, no problems. So it's just funny, the juxtaposition of like the townspeople and the authorities trying to paint these people as ruthless, law, (laughs) non-abiding citizens that didn't give a damn for any law and order. They were a menace to society, but then you had the actual thing where people were actually very happy and they just only cared about the connectivity within each other and looking out for each other in the music. Getting back into the details here, I mentioned the issue with the food. Now, because this was haphazardly, they didn't have a lot of people that would back them and offer their food services to Woodstock, right? The stands that they did have were set up quickly, and they were running out of food by the end of the first day because they did not anticipate this many people showing up. These food stands were essentially a last-minute effort by the organizers because these restaurants, locals, were declining to cater. And what they had done was they had started this thing where they had given out meal tickets to the people. Essentially, if you had a meal ticket, you could get a meal, whatever. Which is like, you know, festivals do that anyway. Festivals overcharge everything. So is that really abnormal? No, I don't think so. But that just goes to show You know, they were charging high prices for the food and people were (laughs) not living in the best conditions. And also, obviously, people had to wait in long lines to get the food. People started to get really antsy. You get hangry stoners that were on the munchies and you couldn't get their food. Well, what would they do? Well, some of the concert goers actually had the smart idea, smart in quotations, to burn down some of these food stands. Was a stupid idea, of course, because then no one else could get (laughs) the food. But some people were even reluctant to leave their tents to get food for fear of their belongings being stolen. Without the law and order there, too, you never know, I guess, what desperate people could do, especially, like, high or drunk people or, you know, strangers. Hey, you never know what could happen. And like I mentioned as well with the whole mudslide thing, people were having no problems taking their clothes off and running uh, buck naked into these, uh, like, mudslide things. Almost like a slip and slide, but with mud, you know? People were actually walking around freely with no clothes on regardless. And uh, they also used the local pond to swim and bathe in. Can you imagine how disgusting that would have been? So even though I mentioned that this festival was generally overall very peaceful amongst everyone, there were only two recorded fatalities. One was from insulin usage and another was caused by a tractor that ran over someone when they were sleeping in a nearby field. That's tragic. Can you imagine that? Oh my God, that's horrific. Those were the only two recorded deaths. There were actually two births recorded at Woodstock. Two people in this entire world have the privilege to say I was born at Woodstock. Apparently there were also four miscarriages at Woodstock and over the course of the three days, there were 742 drug overdoses, which like I mentioned before, that was the main issue was these drug overdoses. Regardless of all the downsides at Woodstock, this is remembered as a festival where like-minded people could get away for a few days from the doom and gloom over the Vietnam War and listen to some music. Pretty good, and actually a lot of the bands had a decent time, but then some of them didn't have a good time. (laughs) A lot of them um, were not pleased that Woodstock was done in a very unprofessional haphazard way that it was chaotic and not only that they refused in a way to give them their payment or they didn't have the means to pay them because they were essentially kind of bankrupt so a lot of these big time bands and artists that were there a lot of them didn't get paid but then some of them did get overpaid because they asked for that notoriously the who janice Joplin. And the Grateful Dead told the promoters hours before the event that they wouldn't be accepting checks, that they would only accept cash. They only wanted cash to ensure that they were good on their word. Because if you could only imagine you accepted a check and then they go to the bank and it bounced, can you imagine? That would have been so bad. So they were like, listen, cash only, we only want cash. Um, so to fix this problem of requiring cash for them to play, The promoters had to resort to calling up one of their local banks in the area to withdraw enough money to keep these bands happy with their payments. Max Yasger owned the site of the event, of course, and he spoke of how nearly half a million people spent the three days with music and peace on their minds. He stated, if we join them, we can turn those adversaries that are the problems of America today into a hope for a brighter and more peaceful future. Um, So Max Yasger is kind of almost like the hero of Woodstock. He actually provided them the land to use it on and not even going to mention the aftermath of Woodstock. That's a whole other issue. The cleanup. My God, I would not want to be there for cleanup duty on Woodstock. I just I would be out of there so quick. I'm like, no, someone else can deal with that. So now I'm gonna go into kind of like the set and exactly the lineup and the people that came in between Friday and Saturday. And then you have Saturday to Sunday, and then you have Sunday into Monday. And Monday was the extra day that they added because again, they were running so far behind anyway. So it had to get pushed into Monday. Richie Havens was the first person to show up and perform. He performed a total of 10 songs. He did a Beatles cover of Strawberry Fields Forever and Hey Jude. And he also did with a little help from my friends. And he did a couple of his own tunes. He did a couple of reprises and uh, encores. And then he did again the Freedom Song, which was improvised. And then Sweetwater finally comes on and they have a set from 6.15 to 7. And then you have burst Summer and he came on for about 45 minutes at 7.15. He received the festival's first standing ovation after his performance of Simon and Garfunkel's America. Then you had Tim Hardin, who came on at 8.30, and then you had Ravi Shankar who came on at midnight. Ravi Shankar was extremely good friends with George Harrison in the late 60s when George Harrison was expanding his mind and spirituality and he was getting into Indian sitar music and Ravi was almost like his mentor. And by this point, the Woodstock grounds were turning into a dangerous mud bath. People were playing and rolling in it, Uh, but then their sleeping gear and tents were also getting ruined by the mud. We have Melanie Safka, and she came on for an unscheduled performance after the incredible string band decided to not show up. They declined to perform during the rainstorm, and so she came on kind of as like a buffer. So she was called back on stage for two encores so that the next person could come on. And the next person was Arlo Guthrie. He came on at 1.45 a.m. And then Joan Baez, who was six months pregnant at the time, came through as well. And she played at 3 a.m. And she was the last person to play. And now we're getting into Saturday through Sunday's people. So the first musician to come on was a musician band named Quill. And they came on at 12.15 p.m. on Saturday. Next is country Joe McDonald. He came on at 1.20 p.m. He only was on there for 10 minutes He was brought on for an unscheduled emergency solo performance when Santana were not ready to take the stage. And then Santana came on at two and they did eight songs. I would say personally, out of the entire lineup of Woodstock, Santana's performance at Woodstock is one of the most well-known and extremely popular performances. I think he did a great job. So Joe Sebastian came on at 3.30 p.m. He was actually not on the bill. He was rather attending the festival and he was recruited to perform while the promoters waited for many of the scheduled performers to arrive. Following that was the Keith Hartley Band that came on at 4.45 and then the Incredible String Band came on at 6. Originally, they were slated to perform on the first day, like I said, but they declined to perform. So then they came on here on Saturday. Canned Heat then came on at 7.30. The band Mountain came on at 9. This performance was their third gig ever as a band, by the way. That's so cool. So following them was The Grateful Dead, and they came on at 10.30 p.m., and they lasted until 12.05 a.m., so they were on there for an hour and a half. Their set ended after a 45-minute version of Turn On Your Love Light, and of course, they're a jam band, so they're known to do that. Credence Clearwater revival, they came on after the Grateful Dead at 12.30 a.m. And they lasted until 1.20. And they did an 11-song set. Some of their songs that they did were Born on the Bayou, Green River, Bad Moon Rising, Proud Mary, I Put a Spell on You, and Suzy Q. At 2 a.m., Janis Joplin came on with her band called the Cosmic Blues Band. Some of the songs that they did were Raise Your Hand, Summertime, Cosmic Blues, Peace of My Heart, and Ball and Chain. Following that was Sly and the Family Stone at 3.30 and they went until 4.20 (laughs) a.m. And following them was The Who. Now, The Who and their set, I think, also is cemented in history as being so famous. Um, They were on for an hour. They got on at 5 a.m. And their set included most of the Tommy album because that was their most popular album at the time. So that's pretty much all that they did. And then jefferson airplane came on at 8 a.m so uh they went on for about an hour and 40 minutes so now we're into sunday so after a bit of an afternoon break joe cocker and his band called the grease band came on at 2 p.m and they played with a little help from my friends obviously his most famous cover you know and his most famous song they performed there Country Joe and the Fish came on a lot later at 6.30 p.m. For some reason, there was like a three-hour time period where no other acts came on. But he was the one that came on next in the evening. And this was also his second performance as well. A band called 10 Years After followed this and they played at 8.15. And then the band came on at 10 p.m. and they were called back for an encore. The band's actually pretty good. They did that song called The Weight. I believe. And they did a couple of other tunes that I like. They're pretty good. Johnny Winter. Now, Johnny Winter came on at midnight, and he did an hour-long set. Now, Johnny Winter is Edgar Winter's brother, and if you don't know, Edgar Winter is an amazing guitarist. He plays the song Frankenstein and Freeride. Edgar Winter actually was there, and he was featured on three of the songs during that hour set, and they were called back for an encore. So The next band is Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They came on at 1.30 a.m., and then... And then we got Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Now this also was one of the most hyped performances that have been recorded from Woodstock since. Like people think about Woodstock and I think they think about Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, at least for me. An acoustic and electric set were played along with an encore. Now Neil Young skipped most of the acoustic set. This was just the band's second performance together as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. So that's pretty interesting there. Neil Young felt The filming was distracting both performers and audience from the music. And as a result, Neil Young's name was dropped from the concert film and on the soundtracks. And then you have Paul Butterfield Blues. His band went on at 6 a.m. And then you have Shanana. Now this is into Monday morning now. So this is 7.30 a.m. and they did their song Teenager in Love. The sole song from the festival for which no recording has yet surfaced for some reason. I'm not sure why. And now we're getting into the most legendary performance of Woodstock of all time, the amazing Jimi Hendrix. Now, this was Monday morning. A lot of people were already tired and they just wanted to leave. Because again, Monday was the buffer day because of the fact that Woodstock extended so far down the line. Jimi insisted that he played last. He insisted if he was to join Woodstock, he insisted he play last. They wanted him to go on Saturday evening originally, but it just got pushed and pushed and pushed to where he had to go on at Monday. Jimmy was also the highest paid artist at Woodstock. By this time, Jimmy was already making six figures for festivals, and so they thought, well, if we're getting Jimi Hendrix on here, we got to pay him big money. So the promoters kept their payments per artist at $15,000, but keeping in mind that Jimmy, you know, was playing here. And he was already making a lot of money from other festivals. They ended up paying Jimmy somewhere in the amount of $18,000 to $26,000 for Woodstock. So when he arrived on Monday at 9 a.m., most of the crowd had already left. So Jimmy played to only 30,000 people remaining. Now, that's still a lot of people. But the original amount of people that were there were half a million people. So this was a significant decrease in the audience size that Jimmy was playing to. And Jimmy played for two hours, which was the longest of anyone that played at Woodstock, and this was also the longest that he ever did in his entire career. And this lineup for Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, his band, um, they only played together about twice after Woodstock happened. So Jimmy played a 17 set show some of the songs. Actually, I'm just going to go through all of them. Why not? Why not? 17 songs. Why not? So the first song was message to love. The second was hear my train A Comin'." Third was Spanish Castle and the fourth was Red House. So by this point, Jimmy's high E string broke while playing, but he played the rest of the song with five strings the fifth song was a song called mastermind the next song he did was lover man followed by foxy lady jam black at the house azalea and then he did gypsy woman slash aware of love the next songs he did oh my god he did fire he did voodoo child and then he did his ever famous star spangled banner which people have credited this particular moment in jimi hendrix's career as being one of the uh, most amazing guitar solos that they've ever heard like ever he also followed this by Purple Haze, and then he did an improvisation jam that just simply is entitled Woodstock Improv, so it was just kind of like a bit of a jam session going on there. The penultimate song he did is called Villanova Junction, and then the encore song he did was called Hey Joe, obviously. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is the entirety of the lineup of Woodstock for the three days that it was there. Un. Believable. If you were lucky to be one of the 30,000 people that heard Jimi Hendrix play, I mean, come on, that's history right there. So I'm sure some of you maybe have questions as to who was asked to perform and who was denied to play and then who declined to play. Well, I have a bunch of people here that I thought I would share and give some insight into this list. So the Beatles were in talks with Woodstock to perform at the festival, but only under the condition that John's Plastic Ono band would be able to play as well. But their request was denied. Um, But the Beatles wanted to play, but they were denied to come. I think people maybe didn't want to hear Yoko Ono. Maybe am I being presumptuous? Um, The Jeff Beck group disbanded prior to Woodstock, so they couldn't go. I have a quote here from Beck. And he said, I deliberately broke the group up before Woodstock. I didn't want it to be preserved. And then Beck's piano player, Nicky Hopkins, performed with Jefferson Airplane later. And at the time, Rod Stewart was the singer for Jeff Beck and was relatively unknown. So if Jeff Beck had able to perform at Woodstock, Rod Stewart would have been there. I think that's pretty interesting. The Birds were invited but chose to not participate, believing that Woodstock would be no different from any other music festival that summer. There were also concerns about money, like obviously. Bassist John York later said, we had no idea what it was going to be. We were burned out and tired of the festival scene. The band Chicago had initially been signed to play Woodstock, but they had a contract with concert performer Bill Graham, which allowed him to move their concert at the Fillmore West. So unfortunately, due to this rescheduling issue, they couldn't go. They had to back out of Woodstock to play this concert at the Fillmore West. However, concert promoter Bill Graham ensured that Santana would take over Chicago slot for Woodstock. We got Santana instead of Chicago, which to be honest, I'm happy that Santana played and not Chicago. I'm not a big fan of Chicago's music. The Doors were considered to play, but they canceled at the last moment. According to Robbie Krieger, the guitarist, they turned it down because they thought that it would be a second class repeat of the Monterey Pop Festival. The very famous Monterey Pop Festival that Jimi Hendrix played at where he lit his guitar on stage. The Doors were like, nah, this is going to be a second-rate Monterey. We don't want to go here, blah, blah, blah. But they later regretted the decision. Can you imagine if the Doors had went? Oh my god. Even though Bob Dylan lived in Woodstock, he was never in a serious negotiation to appear at the concert. Instead, he signed in mid-July to play the Isle of Wight. He went there instead. The band Free was asked to perform, but they declined. Uh, They did play at the Isle of Wight a week later as well. So the Guess Who were also invited to perform, but they declined. Tommy James and the Shondells claimed to have declined an invitation. Tommy James stated, we could have just kicked ourselves. We were in Hawaii and my secretary called and said, yeah, listen, there's this pig farmer in upstate New York that wants you to play in his field. That's how it was put to me. So we passed, and we realized what we'd missed a couple of days later. Jethro Tull also declined to join Woodstock as well. According to Ian Anderson, he knew that it would be a big event, but he didn't want to go because he didn't like hippies. Um, so that's weird, but okay. Led Zeppelin. They were asked to perform. Their manager, Pete Grant, stated, I said no because at Woodstock, we'd have just been another band on the bill. That's a weird take, to be honest. I think Led Zeppelin would have been an amazing band to play at Woodstock. What do you mean they just would have been another band on the bill? They would have been like one of the top people. Joni Mitchell originally was going to perform at Woodstock, but she had to cancel because she had an appearance on the Dick Cavett show that her manager told her, you can't miss this event. You have to go to this interview. Um, So Joni Mitchell was very upset that she couldn't go because she had some of her friends, especially her... Uh, boyfriend and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young being there. However, she would watch Woodstock on TV and she later would compose the song Woodstock that she ended up giving to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young that ended up becoming the anthem for Woodstock. The Moody Blues were included on the original Wallkill poster as performers, but they backed out after being booked in Paris the same weekend. So, The Rolling Stones were invited but declined because Mick Jagger was in Australia filming Ned Kelly with Keith Richards' girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg. Simon and Garfunkel declined the invitation to perform there as well as they were working on their new album So according to Michael Lang Apple records wanted to send some of their acts to Woodstock You know Apple records at the time was very massive This was an interesting change in career or avenue that the Beatles wanted to go down And so they had a couple of artists signed to their Apple label Uh, And James Taylor and Billy Preston were two of the acts that were signed to Apple records So they were like listen if you weren't going to send the Beatles in the Plastic Ono band to Woodstock, might I suggest James Taylor and Billy Preston go. But Michael Lang said all three would have been great, but the letter arrived around the time we were losing the site in Wallkill, and we were kind of distracted, so those never got finalized. And then last but not least, Frank Zappa was then with his band called the Mothers of Invention. He said, a lot of mud at Woodstock. We were invited to play there. We turned it down. But those are essentially the long list of bands that declined to play, or they couldn't play, or their invitation was missed, or they simply just had no means of getting there. And finally, the media coverage in the film that was made around Woodstock. So, very few reporters from outside the immediate area were on the scene. During the first few days of the festival, national media coverage emphasized the problems. Front page headlines in the Daily News read, Traffic uptight at Hippie Fest and hippies mirrored in a sea of mud. The New York Times ran an article titled Nightmare in the Catskills, which read in part, The dreams of marijuana and rock music that do 300,000 fans and hippies to the Catskills had little more sanity than the impulses that drive the lemmings to march to their deaths in the sea. They ended in a nightmare of mud and stagnation. What kind of culture is it that can produce so colossal a mess? rude <laughs> coverage became more positive by the end of the festival though in part because the parents of the concert goers called the media and told them based on their children's phone calls that their reporting was misleading i just find it funny like some of the concert goers are there and they're like reading the news articles that are like happening in real time and they're calling their parents and they're like don't listen to the hype this isn't real oh my god And then the parents call the news reporters and they're like, um, you're propagating false news. I just, oh my God, it makes me laugh just to think about that image. That's so funny to me. The New York Times covered the lead up to the festival and the move from Wallkill to Bethel. A man named Barnard Collier, who reported from the event for the New York Times, says that he was pressured by on-duty editors at the paper to write a misleading negative article about the event. The eventual article dealt with issues of traffic jams and minor law breaking, but went on to emphasize cooperation, generosity, and the good nature of the festival goers. When the festival was over, Bernard wrote another article about the exodus of fans from the festival site and the lack of violence at the event. So the documentary that was entitled simply Woodstock, this was the smartest thing that they ever did. Again, because in part they could have gone so bankrupt with the ticket booths being a problem and everything else but they were lucky that they thought this was important enough to document they got filmmakers to be there with cameras and record the entire thing so this ended up turning into a documentary called woodstock and this was directed by michael wadley and it was edited by a crew headed by thelma Schoonmaker, and released in march of 1970. Artie kornfeld went to fred weintraub who was an executive at warner brothers and asked for money to film the festival this is how it started Artie had been turned down everywhere else, but against the wishes of other Warner Brothers executives, Fred Weintraub put his job on the line and gave Artie Kornfeld $100,000, which is equivalent to $700,000 in today's money to make the film. So it only takes one person to believe in you and your dreams and your ability to make a world a difference without Fred Weintraub being like, sure, the Woodstock film would not be here. It would just simply not have been documented or recorded. Woodstock, the film, helped to save Warner Brothers at a time when the company was on the verge of going out of business as well. So it was a win-win situation. Mm -hmm. Michael Wadley rounded up a crew of about 100 from the New York film scene. With no money to pay the crew, he agreed to a double or nothing scheme, in which the crew would receive double pay if the film succeeded and nothing if it bombed in the box office that is high stakes gambling. So you're hoping you're gonna get double the pay and luckily enough, the film crew would receive double the pay. Michael Wadley strove to make the film as much about the hippies as the music, listening to their feelings about compelling events coinciding with the festival like the Vietnam War as well as the views of the townspeople. So that's the thing. They got interviews from the townspeople, they got interviews from the people on scene, the concert goers, like a lot of people, just documenting everything to create like a well-rounded, accurate presentation. Woodstock received the Academy Award for a Documentary Feature. In 1996, the film was inducted into the Library of Congress National Film Registry. And in 94, the Woodstock director's cut was released and expanded to include Janis Joplin, as well as additional performances by Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix, and Canned Heat, as these were not seen in the original version of the film. That was a lot of information, and my voice is so hoarse. Oh my goodness. But that, in a nutshell, is the story of the Woodstock Festival. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I'm gonna end it here. I'm gonna see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On the Mix. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye, guys.